Thank you, Alex. I am not going to preach all the way through Ephesians this morning. Just three verses. Please turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. As you're turning there, uh, let me just mention a couple of things. I'm really, really happy to let you know that next Sunday morning, standing up here to preach God's Word, is going to be Jared Mellinger. That's right. That's right. Uh, Jared, for those who don't know, Jared is the senior pastor of Covenant Fellowship Church and was used of God uh, to help envision Covenant uh, as well as us for this new church plant. Uh, So there is a great debt owed to Jared, to Covenant, uh, to those that are standing with us and beside us in this mission venture. So next week he's going to be with us. And between now and then... Uh, Just so you're aware and can be praying for us, uh, uh, Andy and Alex and I are going to be going away and our wives to um, Indianapolis for the Sovereign Grace Pastors Conference. Uh, We would appreciate your prayers. This is an expression of our partnership uh, with Sovereign Grace, a family of churches that we love so much and have been blessed by so much. Uh, a time for pastors and leaders and wives to, to be together, to be encouraged, to be strengthened. Uh, and so please pray. And in the meantime, if you have any uh, needs that you think demand a pastor's attention, send all your requests to Leo. Uh, uh, no, uh, what, is Leo even here? Uh, uh, what, you, what you do is um, contact your community group leader and... Uh, Uh, Your leader will contact us as needed, and we'll make sure that we care uh, for you as best best we can. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7. In Him, that is, in Christ, the beloved Son of God, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth earth. Let's pray. Father and God, may you by your spirit move in our hearts, give us ears to hear, give us hearts to respond, give us, Lord, wills to bend, to receive from you, that you may be honored as we worship you through the hearing of your word, and so that we might be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. In the, in the world of advertising, there is a thing called puffery. Puffery is the art of puffing up a product to make it sound far better than it really is. That's the technical term for it, puffery. Like the deodorant or body sprays, guys, that make girls flock to you. Or a beer that is the one and only choice of the most interesting man in the world. Or the Red Bull drink that gives you wings. Or 
the strawberry naturally flavored fruit roll-ups, which come up a little bit short on the strawberry and the naturally flavored end of things, for there is no strawberry in them, and most of its ingredients are synthetic. It does have fruit in it, though. Pear from concentrate. And corn syrup and dry corn syrup and sugar and partially hydrogenated cottonseed oil and 2% or less various natural and artificial ingredients. But the label still says, made with real fruit. That is puffery. That is dishonest. Now, the reality is that almost all the things that we like to promote and brag about, we, we tend to exaggerate their worth. We tend to exaggerate their value or the pleasure or the benefits that they bring to us. We, as human beings, are given to puffery. Paul, Paul uses a combination of words in Ephesians 1 that might tempt us to think that Paul is pufferizing just a bit as he talks about what it means to be a Christian. For, for example, in verse 3, he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Really, Paul, that, that's like saying there, this is... Everything you always wanted or ever dreamed of, you have in Jesus. In verse 6, he calls grace, glorious grace. In, in verse 7, we are told that he has forgiven us according to the riches, the wealth, the prosperity of his grace. This is the first, time, first of five times in the book of Ephesians, where we as Christians are said to experience the riches of God. You can look them up on your own. Not now. Do it later. And look them up and enjoy the study. In verse 8, this grace that we have received is said to be that a grace that He has lavished upon us. The, the word that He uses there speaks of an extravagant, over-the-top outpouring of grace. Make no mistake about it, Paul, under the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is proclaiming to us the riches, the over-the-top extravagance of God's grace. In fact, in chapter 3, he kind of just brings it to a climax by saying, God is able to do far more abundantly for us than anything we can ask or even Imagine. This is, Paul is finding every word he can think of to describe how wealthy we are in Christ. There are unimaginable depths and heights to the joys, to the blessings of being a Christian. And in order to make sure that we know that this isn't pufferizing, God has made sure to reveal this grace to us. To actually back up the claims with the facts. And that's what Paul says in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 1. In verse 7, 
or in verse 8, He has lavished upon us this grace in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. The Father has lavished us with wisdom and insight to know, to know the measure of His will, His plan, His purpose for us in Christ. So the grace of God that we have in Christ is not like a Christmas present that's been wrapped up by God and tucked away somewhere in hiding and God, you go to God and say, you know, tell me about this. And He says, no, I'm not telling. No, He has told us. He has revealed it to us. He has expressed to us the wisdom, the insight to know His will, His plan, His purpose for us in Christ. And And this morning, I want us to see, I want us to see three aspects of His extravagant grace toward us. It is a costly grace. It is a forgiving grace. And it is a cosmic grace. A costly, a forgiving, and a cosmic grace. And as we look at these three facets of this diamond of God's grace, let us keep this in mind, that the extravagant grace of God should bless our days and fuel our praise. The extravagant grace of God should bless our days and fuel our praise. That's that's what Ephesians 1 is about. In verse 3, He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We are blessed. Christian, child of God, you who believe in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, you are blessed. Whether you feel like it or not, whether it seems like it or not, you are blessed. These truths should bless our days and they should fuel our praise. Paul says, verse 3, blessed or praised be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of all the grace that He's poured into our lives. Verse 6, He has done this to the praise of His glorious grace. Verse 14, this is to the praise of His glory. His extravagant grace should bless our days and fuel our praise. So let's Let's think about these things together so that our days can be blessed, so that our praise can be fueled and ignited for His glory. So, the first facet of this diamond of God's extravagant grace is that it is a costly grace. Look at at verse 7. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. God our Father in Christ Jesus, His beloved Son, has paid dearly to pour His grace into our lives. We have redemption through His blood. I know, I know Andy preached on redemption and freedom a couple of weeks ago, so You know, I thought for a couple of minutes this week that probably we don't need to preach on this again. You just got a dose of it two weeks ago. That's all you need for about, what, six years or so. Now, I don't know about you, but I need to hear this all the time. I need to be reminded of this week after week, day after day. You cannot hear too often or too much about the redeeming love of God in Jesus Christ. We have redemption through His blood the forgiveness of our sins. Now, there's, there's a background to this text. 
that, that we need to know about or else it's not going to wow us, it's not going to humble us, it's not going to bless our days or fuel our praise the way it should. And that, that background is really found over in chapter 2 and verse 3 where we read that we once were among those or among whom the world, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. We were born sinners, we were born under and in the wrath of God. We're born into this world with a problem, a problem, folks, that has only deepened and worsened the older we have gotten, and this thing is called the, the wrath of God. There is such a thing as judgment. Hebrews 9, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. That is just blunt truth. We live, we die, we are judged. We live, we die, we are judged. Acts chapter 17 tells us that God has fixed a day. He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. That day is fixed in the mind of God. It is on the way. It is coming. The simple, honest truth is that the Bible declares the certainty of judgment that every human being will, be, will answer to God. You and I are going to answer to God for every word, for every thought, for every motive, for every intention, for every inclination, for every indulged craving, for every action of our lives. I understand that 21st century human beings don't take kindly to this, that, that there are ideas here that are offensive to many. I I saw a church sign just yesterday that said, our faith is 2,000 years old, but our thinking isn't. And other indicators on that church property made it clear that they have renounced the truth and the law and the standards of God's Word. Our faith is 2,000 years old. Somehow or other you can have a vague faith in something, but our thinking is new. It's new and improved. It's different. It no longer lines up with the 2,000-year-old. My friend, if your thinking, if your thinking is not 2,000 years old plus, uh, then you're, you have wishful thinking. You're not having real thinking. I know this isn't, this isn't popular, and we live, our culture does, live, it lives in a state of constant denial about God. R.C. Sproul wrote a book a long time ago called, If There Is a God, Why Are There Atheists? Great title. And in the book, the premise of the book is that Contrary to what the world says, the world says that the reason people believe in God is because they need an emotional crutch to get through life. And Dr. Sproul just turns that on its head 
and says the reason that people don't believe in God is because they need an emotional crutch to get through life. Because the reality of God, a God who sees everything, hears everything, is everywhere, and holds us accountable for everything, the reality of God is too terrifying. We need to deny it and keep on denying it until we believe our denial. You know, let's face it, we don't like somebody who's in our space. That's why we hate elevators. Isn't it? Isn't it? We hate elevators. We, you know, you, you step into an elevator, what does everybody do? Everybody, you know, gets as far back in the corner as they can, eyes on the ground, don't look at anyone, don't talk to anyone, Preserve whatever little teeny tiny bit of space you have. We don't like somebody who invades our space. Well, God is the ultimate, I was going to say space invader. <laughs> oh, man. Oh. <laughs> I don't even know what to say now, but you, th- you know what I was trying to get at there, right? He- He is the ultimate invader of space. Don't don't you... We don't don't like it when people stare at us. If I was to pick one of you... I'm tempted, Ron, to make you the man right here. If I I just was, you know, during my preaching, I I just was... So, you know, and, and, and I just kept looking at Ron. At some point, he's saying, dude, get out of my space. Yeah. Don't get so close. Don't get so near. Don't invade my space. Don't cramp my style. God invades our space. God cramps our style. God squeezes our privacy. And God keeps records. And judgment is that day when it will all be replayed. Every bit of it. Every bit of it. Friends, that is the context against which Paul says to us, we have redemption through His blood. For you see, the word redemption speaks of deliverance into freedom through the payment of a price or a ransom. It speaks of the freeing of a prisoner or a slave or one who has been kidnapped or one who is in deep debt or one who has been found guilty and sentenced to jail or death. Redemption is a deliverance that has been wrought, that has been produced through the payment of a debt, through the payment of a ransom leading to freedom, freedom from a tyrant or a master or a judge, or a punishment, or a slave owner. Paul is assuming here that we as Christians were once slaves. We were once sin and Satan tyrannized prisoners. We were once guilty. We were once condemned creatures in bondage to the wrath of God. But now, redemption has happened. Redemption has happened. Deliverance from hell, deliverance from judgment, deliverance from the, not from the gaze of God, he still looks at us, but deliverance from the condemning gaze of God. 
We have redemption. Now, notice the price. We have redemption through His blood. Whose blood? The verse before, the beloved one's blood. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. We have redemption through His blood. The blood poured out on the cross. That is the payment means by which we have been delivered into freedom. That's why I'm saying this is costly grace. Costly grace. Christianity, my friends, is emphatically not cheap. And grace and salvation are not cheap. It's not as if God is just an indulgent God who just, you know, to err is human, to forgive divine, as if somehow or other it's just what God does. He just forgives and He just overlooks things and He just indulges things. No, no, no. God is holy and God is just. God is a judge and that means, that means that His justice must be satisfied before His love and His mercy can be offered to us. Do you ever ever wonder why Jesus had to die? Why didn't God just forgive? Why didn't God just say, that's okay, everybody? Why did Jesus have to die? If God is so loving and God is so forgiving, why didn't He just extend mercy? Because God is just. And as much as the Father loves us and wants us to be His children, He cannot ignore the reality and the problem of our sins. There's a lot of people out there who don't like the idea of a God who punishes sin. It it offends their sense of morality. But friends, this is where Christianity is very different. Christianity isn't mushy or sentimental that way. Christianity says right is right and wrong is wrong. And it says that if wrong is done, wrong must be punished. There must be a fair consequence for that wrong. And if wrong is not made right through punishment, that is wrong. God is just and pure. For some, the idea that God would punish sin is morally reprehensible, but... The Bible would say the idea that God would not punish sin is morally reprehensible. So what had to happen? We human beings are sinners. We're guilty before God. I mean massively guilty before God. I mean all you have to do is think about the Ten Commandments for five minutes. You shall have no other God before me. Ugh. How many things have you and I loved more than God in this life? Every one of those is a God before Him. You're 0 for 1 and so am I. You shall have no graven image. What does that mean? You shall not imagine God to be what you want Him to be. You will let God be God. To say, I like to think of God as, is blasphemy. You have no right to think of God as you like to think of Him. He is who He is who He is. And as He has revealed Himself in His world and in His Word. So we're 0 for 2. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. So 
Oh, you shall never irreverently or carelessly refer to God's name or take an oath in his name and then break that oath. Oh, for three, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. God says, give me one day in seven that is uniquely mine for rest and worship. How many Sabbaths have gone by in your life with very little rest and even less worship? Honor your father and mother. Oh, for six. You shall not murder. No, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus says, if you even look on a woman to lust after her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. So, just in here, stuff is adultery. Oh, for seven. You shall not murder. Jesus says, if you are angry with a brother unjustly, you've already committed murder in your heart. Oh, for eight. You shall not bear false witness. Uh, that means you shall never share a bad report about anyone that is not absolutely true, proven to be true, and necessary to be told. That's the full implications of you shall not bear false witness. Okay, over 9. You shall not covet. That means you shall never crave anything you don't have in a grasping kind of way. All right, we're over 10. Judgment. There's an accounting for all of that. And have you committed those just once in your life or twice? Or a thousand times or ten thousand times? Each. Each. We as human beings are guilty before God of many sins. And so it is that we as human beings must pay the price for that sin. But the reality is that if we pay that price ourselves, it will take eternity to pay it off. Because we're that guilty. So how does, how does God save us? He loves us. Remember last week? He has chosen us to be his own. He, he wants us to be in his family. So how does God rescue the ones he loves? By becoming one of them. By coming here to earth as a human being, living life as a human being, living a perfectly righteous life, a blameless life, a sinless life, so that he can die in the place of human beings, pouring out his blood as an atonement for the redemption of human beings, that their sins might be punished without them getting punished. So that God's love could be satisfied in our rescue, in our deliverance, and in our freedom. So that we have redemption. Through this costly price, Peter says, we haven't been redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold. But with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. If you're here this morning, a redeemed sinner, it is not because you had enough money or somebody else had enough money for it. It's not even that you had a, a perfect, blameless, 
bull or lamb to offer. It is because the Lamb of God offered Himself for you. We have not been redeemed cheaply. It has been costly. It has been the blood of Christ. We have redemption. This is costly grace. Costly grace. Oh, how great is the love of God for us that He would pay such a price to have us. Notice secondly, that this extravagant grace of God is forgiving grace. Forgiving grace. Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. The forgiveness of our sins. Forgiveness of our sins, our trespasses. The word trespasses really refers to All those things I just talked about, all the Ten Commandments broken, all the times that we've taken the wrong turn, all the times when we've gotten off the path of God's law. I heard heard someone say recently about the human condition, I have good news and I have bad news. The good news, brother, is that you've come a long way. The bad news, brother, is that you went the wrong way. That is the story of the human race. We love to boast about how far we have come, the the evolution of the species. We have come so far, never noticing that we took the wrong way, way back at the beginning of the story. And we've been going the wrong way ever since. Trespasses, sins, violations of the law of God. And yet, here's the good news, we have redemption Through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. The release of the guilt and the debt and the penalty and the punishment for our sins. Forgiveness is pardon. Forgiveness is release from the debt we owe. It is release from condemnation. It is release from judgment. It is reconciliation with the judge Himself. It's being back in harmony with God. It is being back in relationship with the one that we have offended. It's having our record wiped clean. It's having the, the burden of the guilt. Remember, Christian, those of you who have read Pilgrim's Progress, and if you haven't, I encourage you to read it. Oh, that reminds me. We now have the Ephesians commentary uh, available uh, for a modest price in the back there. And uh, Pilgrim's Progress, we, probably, we have that back there? We have the children, which is pretty good too. Uh, Pilgrim's Progress, written by John Bunyan way back in the 1600s. Classic, wonderful read. In the beginning of Pilgrim's Progress, the pilgrim, whose name is Christian, is carrying this massive burden on his back. It's the burden of his guilt, the burden of his sin, and he's weighed down by it, and he, and he is, in fact, burdened by it, and it, it stumbles him, and it nearly sinks him into the, into the, the mire of despondency and, and, and overwhelmed by despair. But as he makes his way through his journey, he comes to a, a hill, and on the hill is a cross. And when his eyes fix on the cross... The burden on his back is loosened and it rolls off his back and it rolls down the hill and it rolls into an empty grave. And the man is free. And it says, according to Bunyan, that he danced a jig for joy. Way back in the 1600s. Danced a jig for joy. 
Because the knowledge that our sins are forgiven, the burden is lifted, it is rolled off our back, rolled down the hill, rolled into the empty grave of Christ. It's gone. It's done for. Hell has no claim on us. Judgment has no claim on us. Justice has no claim on us. Punishment has no claim on us. God's wrath has no claim on us. Satan has no claim on us. We are the purchased, redeemed children of God. Even God cannot punish you now, child of God. He cannot punish you. It would be unjust for God to punish you now because He's already punished your sin. In Jesus Christ. And God is not the kind of judge who punishes the same sin twice. If your sins have been punished, if you've been redeemed, then you are redeemed. Augustus Toplady, hymn writer, wrote these wonderful words and I've taken the liberty to update them just a little bit. From where my fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief His spotless Son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for the guilt of sin He bore upon the tree? Complete atonement you have made and to the final penny paid whate'er your people owed. Nor can God's wrath cause me distress when sheltered neath your righteousness and covered by your blood. If you my pardon have secured and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first from my bleeding Savior's hand and then again from mine. Return I will unto my rest, The sorrows of my great high priest have bought my liberty. I'll trust his wrath-appeasing blood, not fear my banishment from God, since Jesus died for me. That is the gospel. That's Christianity. I ask you, my friend, can you sing that song? Can you sing that song? You want to sing that song? You want your heart to know these things? You want that sense of freedom? Not even a holy God can condemn you because He's already condemned your sins in another on the cross. Do you you want that freedom from all the stuff you've done? All the guilt of it, all the shame of it, all the condemnation of it. Do you want that freedom? Then repent of your sins. And look to the cross and say, Jesus died for me. He is Savior. He is Lord. I trust in Him and in Him alone. And the promise of God is that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. You will be redeemed. You will be set free from bondage to sin. And Christian, you you who have already believed, believe it again and again. And again, day after day, you are blessed with extravagant grace. 
the, the forgiving grace of God so that whenever conscience comes after you, whenever Satan comes after you, whenever accusation comes after you, whenever others come after you and charge you and find you at fault, just say this, I have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of my sins. I, let's just say it, I have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of my sins. This is easy to memorize, easy to utilize in life. Just say it with me. I have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of my sins. I have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of my sins. Satan, be silent. I have redemption through His blood. Blood, the forgiveness of my sin. Conscience, be still. Be still. I have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of my sins. Accusers and haters in this world who either falsely accuse me or accurately accuse me. We can answer with the same statement. I have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of my sins. Make it your daily confession. Get up in the morning. Make it one of the first things you say. I have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of my sins. When you do sin, I have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of my sins. When you sin over and over and over and over, I have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of my sins. And if you're sitting here thinking, wow, that sounds like a, a free pass. I can do anything I want. And just say, I have redemption through His blood, the forg forgiveness of my sins. Friends, if your heart says that in any kind of way that says, oh, this is good, I'm going for it then you're probably not a Christian. You see, because a Christian is a person with a new heart that trusts in Jesus and loves Jesus. And you're not going to so crave and love sin that you take the gospel and make it an excuse to sin. No, the more you understand, I have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of my sins, the more you're going to hate your sins because of the price it cost. To be delivered from them. Anytime you're tempted to take sin lightly, just think about the cross. That's what it cost. That's what it cost. But that said, child of God, you who love Christ and hate sin, I have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of my sins. This is the extravagant grace of God. It is a costly grace. It is a forgiving grace. And quickly, it is a cosmic grace. Verse 7 again. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
Notice this. The grace of God is not just a personal thing. It is wonderfully personal. It begins personal. There's no hope for you unless it's personal. You have faith in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. But it doesn't stop there. God's plan of redemption and restoration is something that that includes all that is. All of creation. Everything in heaven. Everything on earth. Everything everywhere is going to be united in Christ. That means all the brokenness and all the shatteredness of life is all going to be healed and mended. The broken families, the broken hearts, the the broken dreams, the the shattered relationships, the, the nations that are broken, the races that are divided and shattered, the marriages that are, that are broken. Everything is going to be mended. The health that is broken. Oh, thank God. It's going to be mended. It's going to be healed. Everything is going to be whole. Back where it started. Back where it started. Redemption involves more than the release and freedom of God's individual beloved children. It involves all of creation. Everything is going to be delivered and redeemed in Him. Forgiving grace deals with the problem of our sins. Cosmic grace deals with the problem of our sorrows. Our sins are forgiven. Our sorrows will be no more. Behold... Jesus said, I am making all things new. And what Peter says in Acts chapter 4, there is a time coming for the restoring of all things. Amazing. Eden recovered only better. Eden recovered and then some. A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells and peace dwells and unity dwells. All united in Christ. I have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, and I have a part in the cosmic plan of God to redeem everything. For his glory. And unite everything. Under his throne. For the eternal pleasure. And joy of his people. Are you in? Is this yours? Are you trusting Christ? If you believe. It's all yours. Paul says in Corinthians. All things are ours. Everything is ours in Christ. I'm going to ask if the musicians can come forward and get ready to lead us. We have to, you know. The extravagant grace of God is meant to do what? Bless our days and fuel our praise. I don't know how you can think on these things without praise as a response to the praise of His glorious grace. We, we must sing. We must respond, but oh, let it go beyond a song. Let it go beyond Sunday morning. Let these things bless your days. Your life is hard. It's been a hard week for Galen and me. Uh, we've been through some deep stuff. Heartache.
heartbreak, heart-crushing stuff. We've had to preach these things to our own hearts. I have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of my sins, and I am destined for a place and a time where the sorrows will be no more, where the sickness will be done, when I'm going to see the face of Jesus and the light is going to shine from his throne and it's never going to be nighttime again. Never any more tears, never any more brokenness. We need to preach these things to our hearts day after day after day. The extravagant grace of God is meant to bless our days and to fuel our praise. Will you stand with me as we stand before the throne of Him who is so wonderful and so good as to have blessed us with extravagant grace in Jesus Christ.